language lovers, and welcome to another episode of Life in a Second Language with your host, Spring Day. On this show, we have frank and fun talks with special guests about studying, living, working, and loving in a second language, often in adult language, so this may not be appropriate for young ears. Hopefully you can relate, or if you're looking to jump into a foreign language experience, we can give you a glimpse of what you may be in for down the road. I don't know about you, but COVID-19's never-ending world tour has given me a little unexpected extra time at home. Although I really enjoy getting the most out of my rent, I just know that when it's safe to go back outside again, I'm going to look back and think there are so many things I could have done with that extra time, like write a book or learn the difference between plumonic and non-plumonic consonants in the phonetic alphabet like a rock star. But what do I really have to show for the extra time I've had? I guess all my laundry's essentially done and put away neatly in the closet because I pretty much wear the same thing day in and day out. (laughs) Just kidding. The clean clothes are still on the floor. I'm going to give myself a pass for the first three months of the pandemic. I know I needed at least one season to mentally gird myself for a global health crisis where death keeps demanding a frickin' encore. Now I feel like I'm in a state where I want to do something with the extra time COVID is so freaking generous with. And that's why I've decided to take the Japanese language proficiency test level one next year. I passed level two, which is the level you must pass in order to join most Japanese companies. At least that was true years ago when I took the test. Level one is for near native Japanese speakers and will be available to take next year, hopefully. I am also going to study Python, the programming language, because frankly, it's a more useful language to learn. It's a lot easier than owning an actual pet snake, and damn it, if children are learning how to use it, so can I. I will keep you updated on my journey of online self-study, whether you want to be or not. (laughs) So far, I have made and lost the same 80 flashcards five times on a computer app that apparently teaches you vocabulary by crashing and erasing multiple files multiple times, thereby forcing you to create yet another set of flashcards. To be fair, it works. My Japanese vocabulary is getting larger, but I am also furious and my cortisol is through the fucking roof. On a happy side note, if you want to fall down a very, very pleasant YouTube rabbit hole, or as I like to call it, holding your friends and loved ones hostage on YouTube, there are some really great videos by a speech pathologist named Christina Hunger, who has taught her dog Stella to communicate by pressing various buttons on the floor. Stella's vocabulary is over 20 English words and is even able to substitute words when a button appears to be broken. There are a bunch of videos online, and Christina has also started a blog that gives tips on how to teach your dog or cat how to communicate with these buttons if that's how you want to spend your extra time at home. Her website is called hungerforwords.com. Check it out. Why not? And now it's time for... Random Japanese Idiom Corner! Today's idiom is brought to you by irritation. Have you ever wondered why you're upset? Why your heart rate speeds up and your chest breaks out into hives? (laughs) It's probably irritation. Irritation can be caused by, but not limited to, 
a recent iOS update. Fussy applications that don't work even though you paid for them. Owning a Dell computer. Being friends with your racist grandmother on Facebook. Being tagged in photos at family reunions on Zoom you weren't invited to or notified of until after the fact. Seeing someone in the shop wearing their one and only face mask on their elbow. Joggers. People that take their dog for a walk in a pram. Buying an expensive cookbook and then realizing you could have just gone on the internet or YouTube to learn how to make babimbap. Realizing your whitening toothpaste just bleaches your plaque. Realizing that your feet can get wrinkles too. Looking for your house keys for two hours until you realize they were in the key bowl all along. Irritation wants you to know that happiness is fickle. But irritation can and will always be there for you. And that was a message from our sponsor. Now, the idiom of the day is Hesuga chao wakasu, which means to be laughable, but literally means it makes my belly button boil tea, which sounds hilarious if you're into unnecessary violence and torture like I am. The example that the book gives is Kare ga eiga hayu ni naritai nante. Him wanting to become a movie star makes my belly button boil tea. <laughs> Too bad the guy that wants to become a movie star's belly button doesn't boil tea because that would make him famous real quick. I guess it's similar to saying that it tickles him, which just goes to show you just how freaking hot the average Japanese bathwater is. When boiling water in the kettle of your belly button tickles you instead of scalding you like McDonald's drive through coffee in the 90s. And that was our random Japanese idiom corner. Thank you. Thank you very much. I am so excited to, for you to hear the show today. Uh, our guest today is comedian, improviser, avid gamer, and holder of a degree in American Sign Language, a language I have always wanted to study, Jody Bolt. On the episode today, Jody will share with us Jody's journey as a hearing person into the world of ASL and ASL interpretation and language acquisition. You can follow Jody on Twitter at NevermindJody, that's J O D Y, or OKistGamer. Okay on Twitch. That's O-K-A-Y-I-S-T Gamer, G-A-M-E-R, one on Twitch. Uh, thank you for giving this podcast a chance. If you like what you hear, please, please, please wear a mask every time you enter a shop so that you and everyone around you has a decent shot at outliving their grandparents. Well, that's enough of me telling you what to do. <laughs> Now I'd like to welcome to the show a very close uh, friend of mine, an improviser, a stand-up comedian, an extraordinary person all around, Jody Bolt. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for the warm introduction. I appreciate that. You're welcome. You're and thanks welcome. for having me on your podcast. Like I'm so excited. Like I love, I love getting to talk about language. Um, you know, it's something I have at times loved and also struggled with. And so this is really fun for me. First things first, what is your native language and what other languages do you speak? So I was born in the United States and the language we spoke at home was English. Uh, both my parents uh, 
pretty much primarily only spoke English. Um, I think my mom knows a little Spanish, but it wasn't really something that we used in any, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of my childhood in New Mexico. So like you pick up like little Spanish phrases and words, but nothing that like would constitute um, being able to have a conversation. Um, I took uh, Spanish in high school. It was like required that you study Spanish in elementary, middle school and high school. Um, but then once I was able to choose my own languages, um, I studied German and Latin um, and then also Japanese. And then after all of that, <laughs> um, I finally came around to learning American Sign Language. Wow. How did you come about learning American Sign Language? So I, um, it was totally random. I uh, never thought of it as like, I had no real exposure to it. Like most people, you know, just didn't really know anything about it. And then um, one summer I came, I went, I was living in Austin at the time, actually. This was in around 2002, I think. And I went back to Albuquerque for a friend's wedding. And the people I stayed with, there were three women all living in a house together. And all three of them were in the sign language program at UNM. One of them was just taking classes as like a, like an elective, but the other two were actually studying to become interpreters. And so they were all, they would all regularly just like sign around the house and they had a lot of deaf friends that they would hang out with. So I was hanging out with them and I wanted to just pick it up because it just was so interesting to me. And it ended up like, I just really naturally picked it up like within like two weeks I was able to kind of start having like small kind of conversations got to a point where I could kind of like you know because you can a lot of times in sign language if you don't know something you can just finger spell the English word and then someone can show you the sign for that or they can at least just know what you're talking about and so that was like a really useful crutch to be able to kind of just like um, supplement, you know, all of the language that I didn't know. <laughs> um, so anyway, so I got really into it. And then one of, one of the, the women at the house, um, was really like, oh, wow, like you should consider studying this. And, you know, being a sign language interpreter is a very lucrative career and they always need more people and you can go anywhere in the United States and parts of Canada with it. And like, you should really consider it. And at the time I was wanting to pursue, um, being an artist, but, you know, that's not as guaranteed to like have work. And sometimes you just never can make money with it. And so I decided to change my whole life plan. And also I ended up starting a relationship with one of those people in the house. And that was a big part of it too. But I really did enjoy signing and, you know, the idea of being an interpreter sounded really cool. And at the time, you know, also it was just like, wow, you know, you can make really good money doing it. And so, yeah, so I went to University of New Mexico. I signed up to be in the sign language interpreting program. And that's kind of what carried me through the next couple of years of my life. What's required of someone who wants to become an ASL interpreter? I mean, obviously having language skill is important. Um, you know, there are, uh, to become a licensed interpreter, there are tests you have to take. You have to take like an aptitude test, essentially, uh, that shows your proficiency, both in being able to, I guess, like generate language. So being able to use ASL yourself and also being able to understand it. So you, how, how do I say this? It's been so long since I've talked about these things, but basically there's like a receptive test where you watch somebody sign something and then you voice what they said. And mm -hmm. then there's also like a performance test where you are given like a prompt and you have to sign something yourself. Um, or you have to listen to like spoken, spoken speech and then sign 
the interpretation of that. That's kind of like the the sort of um, just sort of the functional part of it that's required. A lot of being an interpreter is having really good interpersonal skills. Um, you know, being able to be discreet because you have to keep everything secret. You can't talk about what you're doing. You can't talk about where you're going. You can't talk about who you're interpreting for. And also deaf communities in a lot of cities tend to be very close knit. So if you're an interpreter in that community, you will be known. And so maintaining friendships with people uh, who you also are working with or working for can be difficult. And so having the ability to do that and to you know, maintain all of your ethical requirements, that's a lot of what's required of an interpreter. So it isn't just being good at um, using a language, it's also being able to navigate all of these like complex emotional relationships and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, it sounds like a big investment. It really is. And that's a big part of why at the end of my program, I decided I didn't want to be an interpreter was because I was like, well, all of these people are my friends. And like, cause in Albuquerque, it was a pretty, it was, a, you know, like I said, it was a small close knit community. And I was like, well, I feel uncomfortable. One, it's stressful because you're in a situation where someone is depending on you and your intelligence and skill and all these things to be their sort of not conduit necessarily, uh, but like, you know, they're, they're depending on you to understand what's going on in a, in a situation. So if it's like a, a doctor's appointment, you know, and they're getting news about a procedure or something like that, you know, that's a lot of responsibility to have. And I got really stressed out in those situations and was not enjoying it. <laughs> this is not something I wanted to do. And then that coupled with the fact that it's like, okay, so I just was in, you know, an office with this person interpreting for them. And now I'm going to an event later and I'm going to see that person. And I have to pretend like none of that happened. And I, I essentially wasn't there. And that sort of compartmentalization was difficult for me. And I didn't enjoy that either. And so at the end of the day, I was like, you know what, interpreting is not for me. I think if I was going to do something related to sign language, I would want to work doing like advocacy or some sort of something like that, or like coordinating work or, or anything other than interpreting, basically. <laughs> I've talked to other interpreters and they talk about the stress of having to be instantaneous with mm -hmm. their interpretation. Mm -hmm. uh, and especially if it's a field that they're not, they don't have a lot of experience in, say yeah. law or medicine or, mm -hmm. or something like that. They get physically ill. You know, there's a tremendous amount of pressure to get it right. Mm -hmm. Well, and as somebody, I think anyone who has learned or has spent time speaking another language knows it is just exhausting. It is mentally exhausting using a second language. And my heart goes out to anyone who's living in a country where they don't, <laughs> they're not native users of the language and they have to speak it. You know, anyone living in America who is having to speak English and it's not their native language, like my heart goes out to you because I know how exhausting that is. And that on top of the stress of talking about things that you're not familiar with. Like I remember um, uh, I used to go into the interpreter coordinating office uh, on campus often, um, partly because they had a paraffin wax machine. And when you sign a lot, your hands get tired and it's always nice to put your hands in the paraffin wax. <laughs> and, um, but also just to kind of hang out, there were some women there who regularly would interpret on campus and they were both kind of like very high skilled interpreters, but they would always have like textbooks open because they were interpreting for a biology class and they had to like read, you know, whatever current chapter that they were on. And they had to learn like, how do you sign mitochondria? Like, is there a sign for that? Do I just need a finger spell it? Okay. Well, I need to have that spelling down. I need to know exactly how to spell it. Cannot make mistakes because the client is going to depend on me to correctly convey that information. So you're constantly learning like new vocabulary and spellings and all of these concepts and things like that, you know, and that's just part of your job. 
is to just constantly be learning things. And it's exhausting. <laughs> I've always um, likened learning a language to going to the gym. Mm -hmm. In yeah. that you're never really done. Nope. You can only be <laughs> impressive. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, it is exactly like that. You're, there is no end to it. Did you ever see those videos online of people signing concerts and things like that in a really mm -hmm. animated way and think, mm -hmm. oh, maybe I might get back in to do a job like that. So that was actually, you know, when I was in the program, that was kind of where I was wanting to go because I was starting, I was just starting to discover my love of like dance and theater and all of these things. Yeah, that's like a whole separate sphere of interpreting because you have like, you know, you've got like court interpreters, you have people who do mostly like community events and you, you, you know, within like any profession, when it comes to sign language interpreting, there are different niches that you can fill, you know, and there are some people who all they do is court stuff and they have specializations that are, you know, certificates and stuff that they've gotten to make them proficient in that. And that's what they do. And so, yeah, so for theater, that's a whole other thing. And there are people who that's all they do is theater interpreting and they'll go do like Shakespeare festivals and they'll go do, you know, concerts or whatever. And yeah, that was definitely something I was interested in. I think at the end of the day, I just like my own insecurities and my own like imposter syndrome and, and all that kind of stuff kind of got me to a point where I just felt like I would never be good enough for that. I know you've like talked to me in the past about how like Jim Jeffries wants to have like sign language interpreters working with him on his uh, shows. And and you've, you've kind of been like, hey, have you ever thought about this? And it's like, maybe when I was like in the program and I was like doing it every day and it hadn't been 10 years, <laughs> maybe <laughs> definitely that was something I was interested in. They, had, they even had a program at the time when I was in school, they had a program in New York where you could go for like a summer and just study to specifically work in theater on Broadway and stuff. And I didn't do it. And I kind of wish I had, but that was just another point in my life. <laughs> well, considering everything that's happened, I'm kind of glad you didn't. Yeah, right. Yeah. I don't know what I'd be doing now, but, but yeah, but I mean, it's a really cool thing. And yeah, I mean, the people who do that work are so incredible because you have to get so abstract with the language and finding out ways to, because you have to go to like all of the rehearsals and you're basically becoming an actor, you know, and sometimes depending on the budget of the production, what they want and what's feasible, you know, you might be the only person doing an entire show and like there might be multiple characters and, you know, all these different things. And then with live performance, like you never know what's going to happen. I went to go see, um, uh, what's his name? Bill Maher. He came to mm -hmm. my university once and they were going to have an interpreter. And so me and all my other interpreting students were like, let's do it. Let's go see, you know, this show and see how the interpreter does. Bill Maher was like fucking with the interpreter for part of the show, you know, and be like, you know, he would say something and then like watch her and be like, how did she sign that? You know? Like, it's one of those things where it's like she, now she is part of the show. She has to navigate that. And like emotionally, like, how does she feel about that? And like, what is the most ethical way for her to like explain what's happening to the client, you know, and all of these things are happening. It's all messy and you can't ever escape like the stress of it. And I think that's ultimately why like, I don't want to do that work is because it's just, it's always going to be stressful no matter what. <laughs> it kinda, I kind of And I mean, perform, obviously as a, as a fellow performer, you understand like being on stage can always be a little bit stressful. I think when it's, the having someone be dependent on you part that I don't like. Um, sure. It's like, if I'm, if I'm on stage in a joke bombs, well, I'm the only one who has to suffer through that. But if I'm on stage interpreting and I miss a joke or I have a brain fart or something like that, another person suffers. And that's where I just kind of am like, you know what? 
I, I can't handle that. Well, I think in terms of worst case outcomes, I wouldn't feel so bad at failing at interpreting it at a comedy show. Sure. <laughs> yeah, right? Definitely. There are worse places to fail. That is absolutely true. Failing at someone when someone's in like a cancer screening, that would be way worse. A bit different. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit different. What What do you think probably the biggest misconception about ASL? Um, well, I mean, this is the question that I think everyone who has never, it's a very obvious thing, but it, it, it makes sense why people have this question. And it's like, why isn't there a universal sign language? You know, and I think a lot of people think there's just one way to sign things and they don't understand that just like any language, you know, deaf people in Italy are going to develop their own way of signing and speaking um, and using language independent of people living in Costa Rica, you know, and Costa Ricans are going to, you know, deaf people in Costa Rica are going to find their own way to navigate communication. And so that to me is like a huge misconception is that like, you know, there is no universal sign language. And especially because when you think about the fact that like, there has never been like a deaf conqueror. So they, they've never like spread language in the same way, you know, like the Romans went and they, they conquered, you know, half the world and made everybody speak Latin. Well, no deaf person has ever done that. So there's never been like any sort of like forced assimilation of ASL, you know, or, or any signed language. Compounding that is the fact that you have hearing people who have forced certain systems onto deaf people. In the United States, we had multiple different systems created to mimic English syntax and like morphology and all of these things in order to kind of like force English understanding onto deaf people because there is a sort of idea that if deaf people didn't learn English, then they would they would be behind and they wouldn't ever mm. develop fully and they wouldn't have full lives. And not understanding that people can always learn English as a second language and they'll be fine. Right. <laughs> like if they learn ASL first, that's their first language. That's totally fine. They can go on and learn English just fine. And they don't have to have like this broken system uh, that isn't a real language. Um, so like one of those is called C, S-E-E, and it's signing exact English. They break down signs into like these like different morphologies. So like development is normally signed like this. So mm -hmm. it's like something, something going up. Right? right. But in signing exact English, it's like you take the letter D and it's mm -hmm. like D development or something like that. So you have to break it up into each, not morpheme, phoneme, syllable, <laughs> into each <laughs> syllable. And it's like, there's this idea that like breaking it down like that, even though it's not natural and it's completely artificial, would somehow aid in, and you have like non-linguists making these, these rules and whatnot. Really? Yeah. So like the American, uh, like educational system for deaf people for a long time was a very like broken place. Cause there were some places, there's a thing called the Rochester method, which mm -hmm. was used, you know, in New York and in the surrounding areas. And that was, uh, where deaf teachers with their deaf students could only fingerspell. They had to fingerspell every single word. So you would just have teachers up there just fingerspelling all day long, every single word, because that's matched English. And so what would happen in a lot of these cases is like teachers would literally like close their doors and then they would just start signing normally. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, that was a, that was another thing. And so that was like a codified rule that was like, if you're, if you have deaf students, this is how you're going to teach them. Um, and you have like things like forced oralism where you had, you were like forcing deaf people to try and like mimic words and lip read and things like that. So, so I think, yeah, anyway, so back to misconceptions, this misconception that there is like one sign language that could be universal or whatever, just like doesn't, it, it can never be that way. And also you have to deal with the fact that 
you know, people in different countries think different. One interesting example, so in, in American Sign Language, uh, the future is in front of us mm-hmm. and, the, and the past is behind us. So if you're signing things like, in ta- like to, to, to show time, mm-hmm. you will always, future will always be sort of like pushing in front of you. Right. This is the sign for will, you know, I will go somewhere. This is like a long time ago. This is how you signify a long time ago. It's all behind you. Well, in Chinese language, it's completely opposite. The past is in front of you. Because, why? Because you can see the past. It is known. Uh. It's something that we are aware of. We, you know, it's already happened and we know about it. The future is mysterious. And so it's behind you. You can't see it yet. So there's these kind of like, you know, differences in culture that influence language that make an, a universal language pretty much impossible. So just another point, <laughs> much like English is sort of the lingua, the lingua fraca of the world or whatever, ASL is sort of that too. After I graduated, I was living in Salt Lake for a while. Deaf people participate in the, in the Special Olympics. There were so many deaf people from all over the world. Come, I, I was working at a, at a health food store at the time. And so just so many deaf people were coming. A lot of them knew, they, they didn't know a lot of ASL, but they all knew a little ASL. And so I was able to kind of just like say, hi, you know, how are you guys doing? What are you here for? And so it was just, it was kind of cool. And then also, even when I was living in Japan, I would find pockets of like deaf people. I found actually in a, in Zushi, I found a cool little group of mostly like older people who were hearing, but were wanting to learn uh, Japanese sign language. And so they, they, it was like a half deaf, half hearing group of people who were just kind of like, you know, exchanging language. And I stumbled upon them one day and I told them that I knew ASL and they all wanted to like, you know, they all knew a little bit, but they wanted to learn more. And so I learned a little Japanese sign language and they taught me a little um, American, or I taught them a little American sign language and it was really cool. So yeah, so ASL is kind of known throughout the world, but it is not, it's just like English where it's, it's something that people know a little bit of, but it's not their language. Interesting. Yeah. I like, the Chinese saying that the past is in front because you can understand it, you can see mm-hmm. it. Yeah, isn't that cool? Wow, that's why they're going to rule the world. <laughs> <laughs> it's really right. neat. Um, yeah, it, 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 sorry, just real quick, just like one other little point, but it's also interesting to see where there are similarities. So like, for example, um, in America Sign Language, this is the sign for bicycle. So right. It's like pedals, you're, you're pedaling. Your, your hands then, are like pedals, yeah. And then I believe it's Castilian Sign Language. Um, this, is the, this is the sign for bicycle. Oh, so it's it's a similar motion, but it's a different hand shape. So for anyone it, who's listening and not watching, sorry, I'm doing a lot of things with my hands. But um, but basically, yeah. So in in American sign language, you're making like two fists and you're moving them sort of like you would bicycle pedals. And then um, in Castilian sign language, you're making what looks kind of like the hang loose hand shape, or it's the letter Y in American sign language, and you're doing the same thing. There's those kind of, those similarities happen too, where it's like, you know, two people living in very different places at different times will have, will see something and have a different, a similar idea of like what that should be. Knowing ASL as well as you did, Mm -hmm. did that help you learn any other languages? (sighs) I think I just, I feel comfortable for whatever reason, uh, learning signed languages, because I feel like like when I was learning JSL, um, when I was in Japan, like I had a pretty easy time picking up. I don't remember much of it, um, but I had a pretty easy time picking up new signs and uh, like learning the, you know, how to like fingerspell hiragana and those kinds of things like felt very natural. And I was able to pick it up pretty quickly. And I think if I had stuck with it, I could have become 
The thing about JSL, though, that's interesting is you really also need to be fairly comfortable with Japanese, like spoken Japanese, and especially written Japanese, because there's a lot of, I mean, it just helps in learning it, obviously. But yeah, that, but like learning other languages, like I sucked learning Japan, like learning Japanese was so hard for me, learning like conjugations and stuff. And I had so much self-conscious, I was so self-conscious about saying things wrong that I, I just kind of prevented myself from really learning. Like I lived with a Japanese family for like four months or something. And I barely spoke to them because I was just always so shy um, about using my voice. And I'm sure they had been a deaf family. I would have been fine, but for whatever reason, like using my voice and speaking things and speaking them improperly is just so embarrassing that I really, it's a huge roadblock for me learning spoken languages. That's really interesting. So do you, you, is it right for me to say that uh, people who speak ASL natively, that it's, it's more of a culture than say a disability in terms of deafness? So, yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that's a huge thing, right? Is that I think most people view deafness as a pathological thing. And so they Mm. see it as like this person, it has an, as an illness or they have a disability from my experience, and of course, I'm a hearing, I, you know, preface, I'm a hearing person. I'm, I did not, I was not raised in deaf culture. Um, and at this point in my life, I have no connections to deaf culture. I don't really have any deaf people that I communicate with regularly. Um, so this is just kind of based on my understanding and what I was taught while I was in school. For most deaf people, they don't see themselves as having any sort of like pathology. You know, they, they are fine. And I very much hold that view too, that it's just like, just because like they can't like here, it doesn't really matter, you know, like mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, like, and yeah. And so they, they do have a very strong culture and language built, you know, in their world. You know, there is, there is a lot of discussion when I was in school about like, like quote unquote, like ending deafness and like what that would mean, because it's like, if, you know, if with like things like cochlear implant and how, like, what does that mean for like the future of deaf people? It's a very complicated topic that I am by no means qualified to talk about, but it is something that is discussed. And I do think it's an important thing to, to talk about. And personally for me, it's like, I really love sign language and I love deaf culture and I love like deaf poetry and I love deaf stories and in, in storytelling. And so the idea that like there would ever be a world where those things didn't exist is like really sad for me. I, I feel very resistant to it. And I'm always like, you know, when I hear people, you know, anytime I've seen like a story on Facebook or whatever, someone whose kid got a cochlear implant, there's always a part of me that I'm like, but why? Like you're cutting them off from like their culture, you know, like there's this whole world for them that they could have been a part of. And I've known people who got cochlear implants and then later like regretted it and ended up like trying to assimilate into the deaf world. And that, but again, that's a whole thing that I am by no means qualified to talk about. And these are just, you know, kind of my thoughts and understanding on it. But, um, but yeah, I do think it is more culture than disability. I would say that, that it is more of a culture than a disability. The reason I ask is because your answer about being afraid of saying the wrong thing, of actually speaking the wrong thing mm-hmm. to your, your Japanese host family, you had a lot of anxiety about that. Yeah, I wondered if that was because of your experience with ASL and getting used to not speaking and mm. in, in your in your brain's other language. You, you know, I, I wonder. So I never have been like growing up when I did kids didn't get tested for like autism or ADHD or anything like that. 
Um, but I do know that like, for me, a lot of times, like being not, I, I can become very nonverbal at times. And in those moments, like using sign language is like sort of a lifeline for me. And like mm. in the past when I've had partners who signed, like it was always such a relief to me that there were, there could be times where I didn't speak, but I could still communicate. And before I knew sign language, I would resort to writing a lot and I would have like full conversations with people, like just writing because it was more comfortable for me. Um, and I do, I think for whatever reason, if it's like a neurodivergence or, or just maybe my own peculiarness, but like, yeah, sometimes speaking can be very anxiety inducing and especially in certain situations. And I think learning when it comes to learning a new language, it's like constant anxiety (laughs) when it comes to like a spoken language. Um, I was in, when I was living in California recently, I had a group of friends who were all from, um, uh, Macau. And so they all spoke Cantonese and I really wanted to speak Cantonese with them because like they were cool guys and they would mostly speak in, in Cantonese and I would just kind of be left out. And then one of them would have to like translate and like catch me up to like whatever the joke was. So I was like trying to learn Cantonese, but yeah, it was that thing where it was like, I would get like one or two things I could say. And I would just kind of like stick with that. And then learning anything new, just, it was just like so scary for me. You know, I would show up and I would try and say something and I would get it wrong. And then I would just like constantly be forgetting stuff. I, I don't know what it is about for me, but like learning things in, in my body, like mm-hmm. I can really hold on to knowledge when it comes to doing physical motions, learning words that I have to like, remember how they're pronounced and, and things like that is really difficult for me. Well, not writing per se, but just yeah. having to speak them. They just don't register the same way that, that signing I could did. Never, I never, like for the life of me, I couldn't remember how to conjugate words in, in Japanese. I just could not keep it in my head. I don't know why. (laughs) I can see why that would be an issue because you conjugate in the middle of the word Mm -hmm. and it's, it's not a fun way to do it. (laughs) It really isn't. It's not fun. Uh, Oh, by the way, do you, do you use any language apps? Um, Well, when I was in Japan, I had a bunch, I had like a dozen kanji apps on my phone. Um, and I do have Duolingo that I occasionally will like make attempts to like learn things through. Like everyone has, I'm sure said, and you know, and we all know is that the best way to learn a language is to use it with people who speak that language. And right now I don't have anyone, but actually I'm sure that there probably are like language meetups right now. Like this is probably a great time for that, you know, with Zoom being so popular, but, um, I haven't looked into that, but yeah, I, um, I do have Duolingo right now. And I've got about six languages on it that I've been (laughs) variously trying to learn. I think it's a good time to do it. Yeah. To to learn. Uh, I've gone back into Japanese and I'm preparing to take the JPLT again. Oh, cool. Just to see if I still have it. Mm -hmm. And also they canceled the test this year. So I've got a whole year I can study. Oh, great. Do you have a favorite idiom in ASL? So I was trying to, so when I read that question, I was like, oh, that's a good, that's a really good question because I took a whole class on, or I had like a whole section of a class on idioms in ASL and I I can't remember any of them. So I had to like, kind of (laughs) like, so I did some, I did some working and there's a couple, um, first of all, like uh, not an idiom, but I was trying to remember the sign for idiom, which it's this. Mm Mm-hmm. So, okay, sorry again. So for people listening, I'm holding up my pinkies on both hands and then you kind of like uh, rotate them a little bit. Kind of like you're making air quotes, but with your pinky. And then, uh, but the sign that I wanted to remember was actually for metaphor, which is you take two hands, like you're like doing like the, like a person walking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or you take your two fingers, your uh, index and middle finger, and you place it on the back of your hand and then on, mm-hmm. the, on your palm. 
So it's like, there's like a hidden meaning. So anyway, so idioms, painting the town red is really fun in American Sign Language. Oh, really? So yeah. So like if you were going to word for word translate paint the town red, you would do like paint. Um, I'm not going to bother saying this or trying to describe what I'm doing, but so paint the town and then the color red. So you would do like just each word. So you do paint town red. But the idiom for that is um, it's like going outside and you're doing something like kind of like scandalous or sneaky, like. Oh, like going on, so your hands go under a table. Yeah, exactly. So like painting the town red, it's like you're going out and doing, not sneaky necessarily, but it's like this sort of, like you're doing something. Like nightlife. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's that one. And then (laughs) this one's just kind of silly, but uh, rolling with the punches. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so rolling with the punches is like this. It's like... (laughs) So you're literally like getting punched in the face. And you're kind of smiling while doing it. Well, the facial expression should be kind of like, um, so that's another, just a point is like with American Sign Language, it's like you you have what you're doing with your hands and your body, but your face is like half of it. Um, Mm. Your face, you know, being able to get a facial grammar is like such an important part. And when I'm signing, I feel like I'm pretty good at it, but I don't know when I'm explaining if I'm as good because I'm smiling a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you kind of have this sort of like you're getting hit look um, and your face is you're supposed to be making sort of a pa like sound with your face or with your mouth. Like a, it's not like a, you're not actually uh, aspirating or making any sort of sound, but there's sort of a math that you're doing with your mouth. Okay. So yeah. is, is it is it correct to assume that like your facial expressions are kind of punctuation and a little bit of grammar as well? Cause it's a, it's a lot of grammar. So a lot of, so, okay. So for example, this is like a very kind of like ASL 101 sort of example is um, mm-hmm. the difference between a yes, no, or a WH question. Mm-hmm. So for yes, no questions, you will raise your eyebrows up. So it's like, um, you know, anything that could be answered with a yes or a no, you would raise your eyebrows up and you're asking that question. WH questions are all like your, you kind of furrow your brow and your mm-hmm. eyebrows kind of go in towards each other. Mm-hmm. And that's just like a very kind of standard across the board. So like, this is the sign for how mm-hmm. kind of unfolding your hands. But mm-hmm. if I like, if I have my eyebrows up, it's like, how are you? But like, if I had my eyebrows down and I did it, it'd be like, how did you do it? So like, just kind of something like that. So it can, it, it gives a lot of context and yeah, so it's a lot of grammar happens on the face. And that in addition to like, you know, your tone, uh, you have the grammar, syntax, all kinds of things happen on the face. You can actually have, I had a, I took a sign language linguistics class and there was this one, uh, one of, it was a very, it was a great class because it was very mixed. Like it was maybe like 60, 40, like 60% deaf people and like 40% hearing people in the class. And so there was this one guy, Gabe, who did a whole presentation on how much the nose is can basically you can have like a whole conversation like just with your nose and using your nose for like punctuation markers and all kinds of stuff do you remember ever making a mistake in your communication that you're like oh whoops i shouldn't have said that that's not what i meant um so it wasn't like a big whoops but like this was after i graduated this is kind of, this is funny because it's not, it's not like big drama, but it was like little drama. Um, <laughs> there was this guy on campus who was like protesting. I don't even remember what he was doing, but he was, I remember he would be standing uh, by the street and having like a sign up. I remember um, this, one of the the women who was like, like the chair of the sign language department was asking me like, what do you think about that? And I said, oh gosh, I can't remember exactly which sign I used, but basically I said, it's his right to, mm-hmm. to be out there. But I, sign, I used the wrong word for right. And I said, like, 
I think I said like, all right, like it's all right for him to be there instead of it's like his right. Mm-hmm. And I found out later that, you know, cause she corrected me in the moment. She like, she, she kind of was like, wait, what did you mean by that? And, and she corrected me in the moment. But then I found out later that she went around and told a bunch of people that I had gotten the word wrong. <laughs> and then I used the word, the wrong word for right. And I was just like, are you kidding me? Like, what did I do to like piss her off that like, she's going around like telling people that I'm like an idiot and don't know the right word for right. <laughs> but yeah, so that was, that's like an example. I don't recall ever like doing anything so egregious or like, in, like where I like offended someone. Mm -hmm. Um, but that is certainly possible. I mean, in any language, I think it's very possible to kind of like, there's so many words that are, you know, close to each other, um, that, that it would be possible to, to do that very easily, but I don't have any memories of doing that. Well, I don't mean, I don't mean being offensive, but causing them to laugh because you got something a bit off. Like, well, she was definitely laughing at my expense in that (laughs) case. I find this really, really fascinating. And if I was able to use both hands, I definitely... Uh, want to learn it is there is there a kind of modified uh asl for one-handed users by any chance i mean absolutely like i mean that's kind of like any language it's very modular right like Mm. um just how people with any sort of like dysphagia or any sort of like you know um problems speaking can learn can still learn english um absolutely people with one arm I mean, obviously, I'm sure there have been deaf people who lost an arm. (laughs) I don't know any personally, but I'm sure that it has happened. And, um, you know, and that was actually an example. I remember in class once, you know, having that come up as an example. It was like, well, what do you do with, how do you do a two-handed sign uh, when you're holding groceries? And a lot of times you can just sort of imply what the other hand would be doing, or you just do the motion with the one hand and from context, people just understand what you're trying to say you know, people who are right-handed or left-handed, like it doesn't matter like what your dominant hand is as long as it's consistent. So there are definitely like certain signs where a movement will be done with the dot, with whatever your dominant hand is and your non-dominant hand will be stationary typically in those signs. And as long as that's consistent, no one is ever going to like be like, Oh, you're left-handed. You know, like that's never, that's never a consideration. It's just more about being consistent with how you sign. Uh, I have a niece who is considering majoring in this Mm. and in university in the future. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give uh, someone who is thinking about pursuing this as a, a career? Um, well, I mean, it's definitely like, I think even now, like, it's probably a strong career choice, even in the times of COVID, because um, prior to to all of this happening, uh, there were some really big advances in like video conference calls and things like that for deaf people. And so being able to um, have uh, like video interpreters, basically. So I mean, there's still a lot of work in that, which is great. And it's definitely becoming just like, access for deaf people is, has gotten so much better over the years. I think, you know, and then another thing too that exists now that didn't exist when I was studying is YouTube. There's so many deaf people now who are able to have, you know, vlogs where they just talk about their lives. And I mean, if I was wanting to study sign language now, I would just go watch, you know, make sure you're watching like actual deaf people, like, you know, cause there are a lot of hearing people who are like, this is the sign I learned this week, you know, or whatever. And it's like, that's great. And like, good for them that they're learning sign, but that's not who you want to learn from. (laughs) Make sure that you're learning from deaf people um, because, you know, they're going to actually know like how the language is used and they're going to be using it, you know, more accurately. 
so yeah, I mean, there are just so many deaf people who you can just go and watch on YouTube and you can just learn, you know, the language just like, it's incredible. There's so many resources now. So, I mean, I would, for her, I would just start doing that now, just like start getting used to, cause that's a huge part of the language is like learning to listen with your eyes, basically. Um, I hate to, like, I try not to use words like listen because some people view that as, um, biased kind of. Yeah. Because they're not, they're not using that. They're not using that part of their anatomy. They're not using their ears. They're using their eyes. So they're not listening right. necessarily, but that's the best way I can think of, of describing it as a hearing person is like, you're listening with your eyes and just so training, training yourself to be able to see those differences in like someone's facial grammar or, you know, just subtle differences in signs that, that, you know, can change a word, getting a head start on that would I think put your, your niece, uh, you know, just ahead of the game, uh, from, from anyone else in her class. And, and the last two questions I have, have for you. Okay. Um, what language do people speak in heaven? In, oh God. I mean, honestly, probably Latin. <laughs> if my Roman Catholic upbringing has taught me anything, it's that they speak Latin in heaven <laughs> or Greek, maybe. I don't know. And, and what do people speak in hell? What is it? Basque. Oh, yeah. Okay. Or no, they don't speak Helen. I can't remember how that joke went. I think it was, oh yeah, they, the, um, oh, there are no Basque people in hell because the devil couldn't learn the language. That's how it went. Ah, so much funnier when you explain it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this has been so great. Thank you so much, Jody. Um, okay. Hold on, wait. I okay. will say real quick, one thing, so what study method was most effective to you? This is one reason why I think I learned sign language as well as I did, and I've never experienced this in any other language class. Every single sign language class I had, it was a requirement that you meet up with another student from your class for one hour a week and just have an hour of only using sign language. You're not allowed to write anything. You're not allowed to speak English. You have to just use sign language and then you have to write about your experience and like what was difficult about it. What did you learn, you know, or whatever. And every single week you had to do that. And I think that right there is such a useful tool. And and when I was teaching English in Japan, I tried to encourage my students to do that, to like find a buddy and just for an hour, just sit down at a coffee shop and use English and only English and no one ever did it. But I do think that anyone wanting to learn a language, even if you use, even if it's like you and another person who have the same language ability, so like you're both super beginners, I think just having an hour of like trying to figure out how do I communicate? Okay, we, I have used all of the language I know. Now what do we do? I think that is such an important process to go through. And I think that's something that can take your language learning to like the next level. That can be, that can be the end of it. <laughs> Oh, that's good. No, that's fantastic. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. This was super fun. I love talking about sign language. I miss using it. And I, I, this is kind of one of those things where I'm just like, you know what? I should go find a, like a group now to go sign with some people. Absolutely. This is the time. This is the one time. And I think all of our lives, we can't say, well, I I didn't have enough time. (laughs) You know, I'm too busy. (laughs) Now, do you have a website or Twitter or anything people can follow um, you at? I mean, yeah, if people want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Nevermind Jody. Nevermind. All one word. No, yeah. And, and that's Jody, J-O-D-Y, right? That is correct. Yes, J-O-D-Y. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks, Spring. Thanks, Spring.